0: Hello and welcome to Built In, the FMI podcast for the built environment. I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. I'm really excited about my conversation today with Russ Becker, CEO of API Group, number five on ENR's most recent list of top specialty contracting firms. Having recently eclipsed the six and a half billion dollar year revenue mark for fiscal year 2022, API epitomizes what it means to successfully build a company through acquisitions. Well, Russ, thanks so much for uh, for agreeing to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Super fired up to be here, Scott. And likewise, Russ. So, ninety acquisitions, five hundred locations, six and a half billion in revenue, and growing. I'm really excited about our our conversation. We're going to obviously talk a lot about acquisitions. I'm sure we'll we'll get into a number of different areas. But before we get too far, uh, do you mind starting us off with a brief overview of of API Group?
1: sure like you said roughly six and a half billion in sales you know we divide the business into two segments first would be what we call safety services that's where our life safety and security businesses make their home as well as our hvac services companies and that's roughly two-thirds of our of our revenue and um, the other third comes from what we call specialty services which Our businesses that are more acyclical in nature, focused on infrastructure, telecom, industrial maintenance services type opportunities that, that those businesses see. Our business has traditionally been centered in North America, you know, really January 1st of 2021, we made a transformational acquisition of the Chubb Fire and Security business which is, you know, at the time was roughly a $2.2 billion firm that was based in in London and with businesses in 20 different countries around the world. So for a company like ours, who was primarily focused on North America, we had very small European operations before the Chubb acquisition really was a transformational opportunity for the for the company and something that we're very very excited about having our chub teammates as part of the uh the API family. So, the business, you know, really has grown both organically and through acquisition, you know, over the course of the um the last 20 years. It traces its roots. You know, we've got companies that were founded in the early 1900s. The original company was the Ruben L. Anderson Cherney mechanical contracting firm that traces its roots back to uh, 1926. And we've got acquisitions that go back um, even further than that. And so the company has a long, long heritage, long lineage, and it's really been growing and evolving since. I think the one thing that's probably... One of our largest differentiators is the company's core purpose, and our core purpose is building great leaders. And, you know, when an organization has as many branch locations and operating companies and in businesses, leadership is essential to your long-term success and vitality. And I think we figured that out back in the early 2000s when we really started our journey of leader development in 2003. And I think that that's made a fundamental difference in our business, and I think differentiated us from our peers in
0: the space. So, Russ, how have you baked APIs' purpose into the DNA versus having it be a tagline, as we see with so many other companies?
1: It really is what defines our company's culture, and it wasn't necessarily that way when we really started our journey back in, you know, two thousand and three. When we started in 2003, I mean, we literally just started. And it was the first time we sent some folks to the Leadership Institute, which is a learning opportunity that's obviously hosted by FMI. And we started having leader labs. And we have our leader labs were simply one in the spring and one in the fall. And it's a day and a half of people getting together you know really like the afternoon of a tuesday with a dinner that night in the morning of a wednesday through through noon we feed you lunch and send you home and i think one of the things that makes our leader labs a little bit unique is we spend 100 of our time on leadership development and there's no spreadsheets there's no talking about business results we're going to spend that time on ourselves as individuals and leaders and coaches and mentors and trying to be the best people that we can possibly be. And when we first started those events, you know, FMI facilitated them. And uh, we just kind of have kept on building and adding and building and adding over time. And, you know, I'd say today, I bet you we've we have sent, I'm guessing on this, but I, I would guess that we've sent 2,500 people to the Leadership Institute, corporate pays for the tuition for everybody, the company's responsibilities to just get the person there. And what that has done for us is it's created a kind of a common foundation for everybody to work from. It's created a common vocabulary. So when people are talking about flywheel and those types of things, everybody, you know, really understands what, what do we mean by that? And it's been true. It truly has been foundational for the company. And as we continue to acquire new companies or hire new people, you know, one of the things that right away goes on their individual development plans is attend the Leadership Institute. And I think that uh, it's been something that's been very good for us. And um, as you know, we basically were a huge part of the creation of the field leadership Institute and still buy out the Field Leadership Institute, I think it's three times a year where we send, you know, only API field leaders to that. And uh, personally, I think that the investment that we're making in the men and the women in the field is a differentiator for us from our from our competitors and peers. Um, I also think that if we're going to really move the needle from a business performance perspective, investing in those folks is something that's that's super important to us. But You know, if you look at it, I mean, I think we're probably spending north of $6 million a year just on leadership development.
0: And it really is kind of the glue that uh, binds our organization together. You mentioned something that I think is really important about the focus on the field and field leaders, the men and women who are out there. And it's always been fascinating for us to think about it. So many firms focus on overhead and how do we tighten the screws and how do we lower overhead? If you think about it, you know, eighty to ninety-five cents on every dollar that runs through any type of construction business, whether it's self-performing specialty trade or or GCCM, eighty to ninety-five cents are driven. I mean, the results are driven by the decisions and the activities of the folks uh, that are in the field. So those field leaders really control the destiny, as you said, from a business performance. Yet the investment in those folks hasn't really kept up. You kind of touched on this. I'd love your take on. When you are talking with potential candidates to acquire them and to make them part of the API family, to what level does does your commitment to leader development become part of the elevator pitch to them, the value proposition to them to come on board? A meeting one. I mean, you know, like we look at M&A
1: through really two different buckets now that we're a publicly traded company. First is transformational m and you know, that would be transactions that are like the Chubb Fire and Security acquisition that we made, that's more of a transaction. That's investment banker-led. The price that you pay is going to be important. Terms are important, but uh, you don't have the same opportunity to vet culture, values, and fit. But if you look at the traditional, more traditional M&A, You know, whether that's buying a $10 million revenue company and bolting it onto one of our existing businesses or buying a $100 million business that we would, you know, have as operate as a standalone inside one of our segments, culture, values, and fit is 100% the key to success, both for the seller as well as for us who would be the buyer. And I learned, you know, very early in my API career going back to, you know, the early 2000s that. If you don't get the culture values and fit component of it right, um, you're going to continue to struggle, you know, with bringing that business and those folks into your family and feeling like you're, you're part of the family. And so if somebody doesn't think that leadership development is the right thing for them or the right thing for their business, the chances of there being cultural alignment are probably pretty low. And, you know, we really openly encourage potential acquisitions to vet us just like, you know, we want to vet them and so that they make sure that it's the right fit. And the reality of it is for us is, you know, we need to pay a fair price when we buy buy these companies. But if the seller is 100% focused on getting the the highest price that they can possibly get for, for their business, they should go sell to private equity or to somebody else. And we're probably not the right fit for them. And so it's something that's really important to us. And, um, you know, I feel like over the course of time, you know, we've really done a good job
0: of staying focused on culture, values, and fit. It's a great point. And I've heard you say this before, but we don't buy fixer uppers. And so as you think about culture, values, and fit, what does that look like? When you go about vetting firms to come on board the platform, What does uh, what does that look like? Well, I mean, I think you spend time with them,
1: right? we all have our little i guess nuances on how we how we how we do that and how we go about that like i love seeing people in social settings because i can see how they treat the wait staff or see how they treat the bartender or if they hold the door open for folks when they, when they're going into a building i like to see them take us on a tour you know of their business during operating hours and how do they interact with the folks on their team you know when they see them you can tell right away whether they they know the people or they don't know the people i mean you can just tell and you can tell i can tell so much by just walking through a business i can tell if they cleaned up for us or this is just normal operating you know you can tell a lot you go out into most most of these businesses are kind of office warehouse you know where they have the office in the front and the warehouse operation in the back i always go into the warehouse is it a mess you know, or is it really organized? And uh, so all of those things can give you, I mean, the, the math is the math. It's not, it's not that hard. I mean, if, if you're going to try to put a value on, on a business, give me a copy of their last three years, financial statements and a current balance sheet. And in 10 minutes, I can tell you what I'd pay for the thing. It's the, it's vetting the business for, for that fit. And that just takes time and spending with people, you know, I mean, I feel like over the course of the last 20 years, I feel like we missed on, on fit one time. And I I still kick myself in the backside every day for it. I more or less delegated that whole kind of vetting process. And obviously, I can't vet every individual transaction that that we do. But in this particular case, three days before the deal closed, I flew out and had dinner with the guy and didn't really spend any time with them. And he he slipped by, and uh, I mean, out of all the deals we've done, I feel like that's a pretty good track record in general. But still, I think that if we would have done the right level of homework,
0: it wouldn't have happened to us. I'd say eighty plus versus one is a pre- <laughs> is a pretty good track record. You you mentioned something that I think is really interesting. So the math is the math. I'm curious how much of your deal team's energy is focused on managing the psychology and the emotion of the seller or the, the firm getting acquired versus kind of the math, the EBITDA are announced. I actually, Scott, think that that's something
1: that I give our team a lot of credit for, right? They, I think that they've, they've realized over time that, you know, we're doing deals all the time and the seller is probably going to do it one time in their life. Right. And to me, that's a strength and, you know, building trust is something that's, you know, really important. And, you know, the world that we fish in is pretty small. And you know, word's gonna get around if you don't treat people, you know, what I always say is fairly. If we're gonna ask a seller to take risk on something, we should be able to give we should be willing to give them upside. I mean, it and it it the gate needs to swing both ways in these types of deals. And it's not about winning a negotiation. Your chances of winning a negotiation, um, if you really wanted to, would probably be pretty high. But that's not gonna make, you know, that individual seller feel very good, you know, on the other side of it. And uh you need to treat people fair. And I've always said this, if we have if we tell somebody that we're going to do something, I don't care what the lawyers come up with, we're going to do what we said we would do. And I think it's a testament to, you know, how we treat people is a testament to the fact that, you know, like a gentleman like Steve Ulmer, you know, we bought Davis Ulmer, which is a um, life safety business. We bought that company, I don't even know, 16 years ago. And Steve Ulmer, is still working for us. You know, his role's changed and evolved. And I think he's doing stuff that he finds that he has more fun with. Paul Gruno, we bought his company 15 or 16 years ago. He's he's still working for us. And um, I think that that's just a testament to, to how we treat people. It's the fact that we, you know, really spend the time getting to know people. And, you know, we invite good, really good people to join the API family. And I think it all works kind of in concert with each other.
0: I mean, those those are great testimonials and examples of walking the talk. The first thing that came up for me is the perspective that short-term easy is long-term hard, and that winning the deal might feel good in the moment, but the long-term residual impact might not yield the impact you're looking for. Curious, having said that, how often do you encounter sellers that have unrealistic valuation expectations? All the time. You know, I I figured that would be the answer, so it was a little bit of a layup, but um, how do you manage through the process of closing that gap in expectations?
1: Well, I think really all you can do is just have a conversation with them, and sometimes, sometimes you have, to, I guess, so to speak, you have to be willing to say no. I guess wish that particular seller luck, and sometimes those those transactions come back around. You know, I I think that's where, from my perspective, you know, we have to be disciplined. You know how how we look at things, no different than we preach to our individual businesses about being disciplined from a from a project selection and a customer selection we have to be disciplined in from an M&A perspective and we can't we can't overpay for transactions we need to pay pay what what's a fair price and uh if you know we're not in alignment about what fair is you know sometimes you can bridge that gap with an earnout so that if the business performs at a higher level then they get paid and we get paid and everybody feels feels good about it but if uh if you feel that in general that You know, you would potentially be overpaying for the business. You have to have discipline and and just say, no, we're not going to do that. And, you know, we'll keep in touch and most things come back around. We'll have another conversation about it. So I think it's just it's just really being disciplined about it and knowing what you're what you're willing to pay as you as you move into any sort of a transaction. Obviously, the higher the percentage of their revenue that's coming from service or recurring revenue is going to drive a, a higher valuation and businesses that have a larger percentage of their revenue coming from installation work or new construction activity is gonna get a lower lower price. And so if people, you know, want to have a higher price, you know, it's like, all right, let's we'll wait and build up that revenue and and in the service piece of your business and we'll have another conversation about it down the
0: road. Whether you've learned them the hard way or the easy way, what would you say are your biggest lessons learned to date? Well, the the biggest is culture, values, and
1: fit. The second is don't overpay. The third is that if the seller won't guarantee their work in progress schedule, they're hiding something in their work in progress schedule. The fourth is if the seller won't guarantee their accounts receivable, then they there's a problem in sitting inside their accounts receivable. Fifth is probably making sure most of these businesses, the building in the facility is a related party transaction, and oftentimes they're paying rents at above market. So do we have, you know, are we paying market rate rents? All that stuff. What are you going to integrate? What are you not going to integrate? Are you going to move them onto your health insurance plans or are you not? All that stuff has to be communicated right up front so that there's no, no questions about where it's going to go when the transaction closes. And I think that if you can do those things, you'll find out that the, the deal will be successful for both parties on the other, on the other side, all of that stuff came from the school of hard knocks back actually, before I came to API group, you know, we bought a small business in, in new Orleans, they didn't guarantee the work in progress schedule. And we just got absolutely punished and it's like, we're not doing a deal unless there's some sort of a guarantee on the work and progress schedule. Now, you do a Chubb Fire and Security transaction, that's going to be a public company transaction and you're going to you're getting what you get. And so you have to, you know, your diligence has to be done at a at a different level.
0: It makes total sense. And the first question that popped into my mind is and you kind of touched on it earlier, but how do you work with the team to avoid deal fever or falling in love with the deal? That's just discipline. For me, I can honestly look
1: at look you in the eye and say, I've been doing it for almost 20 years. And you know what? I don't need any headaches. So, you know, let's just make sure that we're being smart about it. You know, most people, most of the time, there's there's plenty of signs that come up that, you know, would steer you away from pursuing a transaction. At the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, just being super disciplined about what you're what you're doing. I think, you know, if you're talking about me, you know, sitting in my perch, I mean, I think a big part of it is for me to be willing to listen to other people's, you know, thoughts and and opinions. And there's probably too many people who think that I probably don't listen enough, including my family. But but the reality of it is, is that if you're not willing to listen, then you're only getting X amount of the fact pattern. And then you might, you know, catch
0: yourself, you know, making a mistake or getting a little overzealous as you pursue, you know, a transaction. Success begets success. You all have done so many and been at it for so long. You know, there's going to be another one down the road. You don't have to fall in love with this one. You don't have to make this one work. There's going to be other opportunities because you're constantly in the market looking for them.
1: Yeah. I was talking to the woman who leads M&A for us today. You know, we have like four, what I would consider mid-sized opportunities that we're we're not dug dug in on any one of them to any level but there's like we have some interest on on these four opportunities and my conversation to her was like we need to pick like what's our priorities and put them in a list and just start working down that list cuz we're not going to do all four of them number one we don't you know wouldn't have the capital to do it both from a actual capital but we also don't have the human capital to to do all four and so you have to just you know be
0: honest about it and that's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've kind of touched on a lot about your philosophy, how you approach it, the things you look for, almost as sort of advice to others out there that are thinking about pursuing an, an acquisition strategy. I'd love to hear your take on if you were to give advice for folks considering selling their business, You know, what would that look like in your mind? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot there, right? I mean, I could take I could take
1: this part of the conversation in about seventeen different different directions. I think the most important thing, if you're a seller, um, you have to ask yourself right up front: is what's important to me? Is finding a good home for my for the folks on my team is that a priority for me? Do I want to continue working in the business? Or do I, am I looking to, you know, as quickly as I possibly can transition out of the business? I mean, those are, those are things that are important to us. Like we're not buying a business where the, where the seller, you know, wants to quit, you know, six months later. We, we're looking for that transition period to, to go for two or three years. I mean, we get the fact that people are, you know, want to retire or want to, you know, slowly transition out of their roles. That would be a second thing that I would potentially, you know, consider the type of structure on the transaction, you know, what is the, what is the buyer willing, how is the buyer looking at it? Are they looking at it from a stock perspective? Are they looking at it from an asset perspective? And how does that affect me from a tax perspective? But I think those are really kind of the key things when I'm thinking about more of the traditional API type of transaction, you know, maybe, maybe next I would add in do do I feel comfortable doing this without an advisor? Do I need an advisor? Who would that advisor be? Because, you know, some people are are actually good at it and some people are not good at it. And are you going to, are they going to represent your business and your employees and, and your team in the right fashion? So I would suggest they call you know, somebody at EPI and ask them for their advice. And if they're in the life safety, and if they're
0: in the life safety space, we might be interested. You you might know you might know somebody, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, perfect. I uh, switching gears. Obviously, you mentioned when when you went public, things changed, and the way that you look at acquisitions now is is a bit different. I think you talked about two lenses, right? One is the transformational lens, i.e., the Chubs of the world, and then you've got more of the strategic extensions of your existing businesses. But how has life changed for you since going public?
1: Well, I mean, a lot. I mean, I, there's, there's just no, no getting around it. To lead and run a, a publicly traded company is different than running a privately held company. And it takes different people. To really effectively lead a publicly traded company versus private, and we went uh, public, you know, through a SPAC, which is in its own way a form of an IPO, but you know, we went from private to public, you know, essentially overnight, and went to work building that airplane as it was, you know, running down the runway, and I think it's a different model and a different approach, and the, the reality of it is the SPAC and how the business is founded matters and you know we actually have the three individuals that founded the vehicle that acquired api the way they get paid is based on the performance of the company and, and the share price and so their incentive is to ride right alongside us and help us be successful versus the transaction closes they take a fee and they redeem their shares and run and so it's it's worked you know really well for us we didn't have compliance. You know, you we weren't worried about being SOX compliant. So, you know, we have a compliance office. And when we were private, I had one shareholder that I had to uh, to please. Now I have multiple shareholders that we that we have to please. And depending upon the time of the quarter, I probably spend 20% of my time, you know, on investor relations, which means I'm not spending that time on our business and in our business. And you know, so we've had to evolve organizationally to make sure that we're maximizing the performance of, of our individual businesses in, in, in the company. So I do think we found the right home for the company. Um, I wouldn't change anything from that perspective. The journey has been crazy, especially when you think about sprinkling uh, the pandemic in there and then all the issues associated with inflation and supply chain and now potentially a recession. I'm just the company and our people, to be totally honest with you. I mean, like you think about resilience. I mean, our people have been just absolutely amazing in how they've prioritized the company and put the company first and done everything everything they can to help help the biz- business move forward through a very very difficult time frame and um, couldn't be more grateful for them
0: thankful for them proud of them
1: yeah amazing
0: i mean what you just said i mean that's a heck of a lot of disruption external disruption as you look at api versus other firms that have gone the spack route api has been a bright spot obviously a significant bright spot among that community of of companies so what do you attribute that to
1: number one i attribute it to the way Martin Franklin structures his vehicles. I mean, there's a few things that are unique and I'm by no stretch of the imagination an expert on SPACs, but his vehicles are always established on the London Stock Exchange. It's less expensive. And when they find the transaction that they want to do, they only need board approval. They don't need shareholder approval. So, you know, you think about our situation and the majority shareholder gentleman by the name of Lee Anderson and where he was at from an age perspective, you know, he wants certainty. He doesn't want, you know, this whole question of are the shareholders going to approve it or not going to, you know, approve it. And that's, that's you know, that's a big deal. And uh, um, I think that's pretty meaningful. And then again, I think it's really about how how do the founders get paid? Do the founders basically, upon the closing of the transaction, take a fee redeem their shares and run, because that's what was happening with these SPACs that were founded on the New York Stock Exchange. And there's a reason that they failed. And and I also think that they were not the type of business that they were acquiring. Like you need to actually have a real business and a real company. And uh, people were selling startups to SPACs and businesses that didn't have products that were approved by the FDA or whatever. And all of a sudden, that business could struggle. And um, so I think that there's just some, some things that you know, like we fit. I think we fit really well for the vehicle that acquired us, and um, it's worked out great. So we're one of the, probably the top five or ten percent.
0: Yeah, it's quite quite impressive when you look at uh, API's performance versus the peer group that's gone the spec route. You mentioned twenty percent. Given the the time frame spent on investor relations, I'm curious. You know, now being public, how do you spend the other eighty? If you were to break it down into big big chunks. I mean, a
1: lot of ways I spend it on the same stuff and a lot of ways I'm spending it on different stuff. I've really re-energized my efforts around culture and our purpose of building great leaders and making sure that we're keeping that at the forefront of of everything that we that we do. I spend time, you know, in our businesses, you know, like last week I visited two of our two of our business locations, one in Tifton, Georgia, one in North Carolina, you know, where I typically do town hall meetings and interact with our you know with the people on our team. Um I always come away from those visits with impressions and opinions and usually some things and opportunities that I see that we could potentially fix and and make better. But the most important part is is being out there with the folks on our team. I think that I, I bring the most value to our organization when I'm focused on our people, our culture, our purpose, and, you know, their health and well-being and what's going to move the needle for us over the long haul.
0: It's interesting. You know, as you talk about that, I'm reminded of a, a gentleman named Bob who who is the uh, longtime CEO and chairman of MWH. And he was talking about leadership and where leadership should spend its time. And it was, you know, the four levels of leadership. And level one was kind of the day-to-day fire drills. This customer's upset, somebody filed a claim. Level two is these more three to four months out. It's it's more rear view mirror than forward looking, but it's, it's putting together a committee to make sure that level one issue doesn't happen again. Level three is more three to five years out, more strategic. You know, where do we place our bets? What markets? What segments? And level four is really the enterprise level. It's the culture, it's the brand, it's the capital structure, it's the bigger picture areas of the business that only the CEO or the top C-level C leaders can and should spend their time on. And, and his, his point and his punchline was that most leaders barely get out of level two, just because the nature of the business is such that... If you don't have the team around you to lean on, you kind of get pulled down and managed by the organization versus the other way around.
1: Well, I mean, if you're not with your people, I don't know how you can know what obstacles they're facing, what challenges they're they're having. You can't run a business based on spreadsheets, at least not a services business like ours. You know, we have twenty seven thousand employees across the world now, and I think it's important for us. You know, as leaders, to be visible in the organization, and we do videos, and you know, we've got a lot of things that that we're trying to do um, as an organization to make sure that we are giving people access and they need to see. You know, I was really interesting. I was I mentioned I was visiting this. We bought this company by the name of Sunland. It was a bolt on to one of our existing businesses. This is the one that's in North Carolina, and um, we had a town hall meeting. They brought. Everybody in from the company, they had uh, men and the women that work in the field and brought in to the office and in everything else. And uh, I had an individual ask me a question and I don't get many questions that stump me. He asked me a question that I thought was so profound and it was so simple. He asked me, how do I know that you really care? Wow and now you're standing in front of a group of 200 or 250 people whatever it is but like I really care like you know there's a lot of people that sit in my chair that really don't care and they look at the people that are actually out doing the work like they're just an asset and just a number and like that's not how I look at it and I I suppose a big part of that is my upbringing I grew up in a mining community in northern Minnesota and My friends' dads were steel workers and iron workers and pipe fitters. And, you know, I mean, I just grew up in that environment. And so I've developed this deep regard for the the men and the women that are doing the work in the field and how many challenges. And having somebody ask you that question just really made me think. And I haven't stopped thinking about it, actually, since last week. And essentially, my response was, my actions are going to have to show you that I care in everything that I do. And. The words that I choose, um, what I say, how I spend my time, my actions are going to show you that that I really care or not. But I'll drag that around with me for a long, long time because it
0: was really a meaningful question that I'm actually grateful that he asked. Well, it's, yeah, I'm smiling because I mean, it is a profound question and you touched on it, but have you made any revisions to how you answered it then to how you would answer it today if you were asked the same question? You know,
1: I don't know that I, that I, that I would answer it any, any differently because I think it's, I think the way I answered it was probably, well, not probably. It's truthful. It's how I feel about it. It's me being, being honest. It's one of those things. If you try to pat yourself on the back, then you come across, as being somebody who's not genuine like i'm a i i view myself and you know i hope my 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 teammates at api view me this way but i view myself as very transparent kind of straight up type of of leader who actually really cares
0: When you hear answers that are platitudes or uh, examples, you know, it does kind of tend to turn some folks off versus just the straight up authentic, here's what I think and here's what I feel. But what a question. Uh, As we're getting close to the end, at this stage of the game, I'm curious, what keeps you up at night, if anything?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, my biggest problem probably is when I wake up in the middle of the night, my brain starts working that I can't, you know, calm it down. You know, I think um, succession planning is probably an area that, you know, I feel like we have the most work to do, which ultimately leads you to, you know, a conversation about depth of talent. Thinking about my successor, you know, I have to think about it differently, right? Because the chances of that person leading a, you know, six and a half billion dollar company are pretty small. It's probably going to be nine billion. And so you have to think differently about, you know, the old Wayne Gretzky line, you know, I'm going to skate to where the puck is going to be. Right. And, you know, we need to be thinking about leadership in our company, in our organization that's four or five, six years down the road and what this company is going to look like when it's 7 billion, 8 billion, 9 billion, 10 billion. And what does that look like and what sort of talents and people do we do we have to bring into the organization? I think that's something that I've gotten better at over the course of my career is being more thoughtful about for a six and a half billion dollar company in 2022, you know, what does a seven and a half billion dollar company need to look like? And what are we missing if we're going to be successful at seven and a half billion? And, and asking those questions and being a little bit more thoughtful about it, you know, is something that I've learned over time. And, you know, I think that our board, you know, has traveled these, these waters. So they have a really good perspective of that and they've been very, very helpful in helping helping to give us really good advice on how do we need to be thinking about these things.
0: Last question I would just ask you is if you were to be able to go back in time and go back and visit with your 25-year-old self, what's what's the one piece of advice you would offer?
1: <laughs>
0: oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Maybe don't take myself
1: so seriously. I think that... You know, just based on my my upbringing and, you know, I had a little bit of uh, um, my parents split up when I was, um, you know, 15, 16 years old. And I think that I've had this part of me that like I've got to hustle to prove my worth. And I think I've, you know, maybe taken that a little bit too seriously, probably could have enjoyed the ride a little bit a little bit better along the way, I think that the opportunity w- for me to get to the same place wouldn't have changed, but the enjoyment factor on the journey may have. So maybe don't take myself so seriously and um, focus on having more,
0: more time to smell the roses along the way. Of course, Russ, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and I'm, I'm curious, are you, how do you feel you do on that front these days being where you are? <laughs> well, it
1: ebbs and flows. You know what I mean? Like I have a coach. This woman's been very, very good for me and helps me, you know, keep things in pers- perspective. This person's more of a life coach too. It's not just like it's not a business, it's not a pure business coaching relationship. She's asked me to do some different exercises to bring some perspective about how do I want to look back on my my career and my time with my family and asking my kids what's the first thing you think of when you think of of me as your dad 10 years ago i never would have done that you know and today um i think i'm much more thoughtful about about those things and the reality of it is is i'm not great at it and you know that's clearly a you know a learned skill but uh having people around you and having a coach or having a mentor or having somebody that can give you that feedback, I think is something that's, you know, super important. I know for me personally that um, I would be lost without those those folks being kind of in my sphere, if you will.
0: That's great. Again, I, I really appreciate it. And I'd love to unpack that some more sometime, but um, I think we're getting close to the end of our of our time. But uh, what's the saying? Feedback is a gift. And sounds like you've really embraced that here in the last several years. Russ, listen, I I can't thank you enough again. Thank you for your partnership. Thanks for agreeing to do this. It was great to spend time with you again today. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Nice to see you and uh, anytime. Take care. Thank you. See you. Thank you for listening and please join us again next month for a conversation with Denise Guttman. Denise is a partner in our leadership and organizational development practice at FMI, and she'll be here to talk about our recently released industry talent study and what firms can do to win the talent war.